Hello, good evening, good day, everybody. Welcome to the eleventy-first episode of the Ask Abhijit Show. The the Ask Abhijit Show is now eleventy-one episodes old, one hundred and eleven episodes old, and uh, and we just keep going as always. So uh, let me see who all is there with us. Uh, Vitamin Protein Vault Gaming, Samir Das, Arnavo, Arjun, Asmenor, Priti. DS game Tejas Samar Sampriti Prateshwar Ganpat Ricky Alpha Siddharth Ashutosh Sketch with Sneha DJ Destruction Vinay Chaitanya Komal Priyanka Priyanshi Akash Tejas Forever Night Nasir Kunal Chaitra Arijit Tapasyash Lakshya Vansh Vladimir Adityanath Vladimir Putin, Samir Das, Manish, Sampriti, Shweta, Abhinav, Prateshwar, and lots of other people. Good evening, good day to all of you. Great to be again back with you all. So today we're doing history, geopolitics, current affairs, all those things. So shall we get into it? So as always, I've picked a bunch of questions, and hopefully, if there is time at the end, we will take a few questions from the live chat at the end. So let's get right into it, my hobbits. What's question number one? Question number one is by Rahul Gupta. What's your take on India reopening its embassy in Afghanistan? What might be India's intentions? So uh, we are renormalizing our uh, relationship with Afghanistan. I mean, uh, when did the Taliban takeover happen? I think it happened in August 2021, which is less than a year ago. And at that time, I, I said that very soon afghanistan and india will again be on the same page the taliban do not hate india contrary to whatever the media says and all that the taliban have absolutely no antipathy towards india and they prefer india towards uh, to pakistan they would prefer to be on the side of india and cooperate with india than to cooperate with pakistan and that is something we're going to see over the long period of over the long run so 10 it's been 10 or so months which is still a very short period of time in the context of history and geopolitics it's like an eye blink of a time that's all it is and yet we are seeing the reopening of the indian embassy in afghanistan we sent a military plane with our officials and uh, uh, diplomats and personnel and we are reopening it so so even when kabul was being taken over by the by the taliban last year in august then too they ensured very clearly they made sure that all indians are evacuated safely there are no issues whether it is indian diplomats or officials or civilians everybody was allowed to depart safely and even some uh, afghans were allowed to uh, get on the indian planes uh, the ones that the indian government wanted to take take out of afghanistan so the taliban cooperated even at that time but there was a period of chaos so the period of uh, uncertainty in the country now the taliban are reasonably uh well in charge they are in control of the country more or less all the various issues are uh, well are more or less in the control of course i don't want to go into the internal matters of, of how they are running the country what policies they are adopting that's their business as long as they don't interfere in my business i will not interfere in their business so the taliban want to reestablish proper uh, diplomatic and other relationships with india india is sending wheat and other things to the country <clears throat> so that's where we are in the long run india and afghanistan whatever government is there in afghanistan india and afghanistan have shared interests and shared concerns and the shared concern we know what it is it is pakistan the afghans whether it is the taliban or anybody else views pakistan as the enemy 
they have the afghans have a big territorial dispute with the pakistanis they seek their territory back from pakistan so that's something that's not going anywhere that issue and the pakistanis everyone knows wants to they want to use afghanistan as their strategic backyard they would like to destroy afghanistan and use the people of afghanistan as, as cannon fodder in a hoped for eventual war with india that's what the pakistanis want and obviously that is going to be at the detriment of the afghan nation and the afghan people so even if the taliban is in power and people say that it's a it's a pakistani creation and, and still you see that the taliban wants to have good relations with india so that is where we are we are reopening our our embassy uh, i am i don't know what what discussions have happened obviously there have been discussions happening between uh, the indian government and the taliban yeah we are not privy to those discussions we don't know what has been discussed as obviously we should not know what is discussed certain things are not supposed to be in the public sphere in the public domain so there have been discussions going on and the result of these discussions is that we are reopening our embassy there the taliban has been requesting india for quite some time to reopen its embassies and all that and they have assured they will provide adequate security and obviously we will send our own security personnel to guard and defend our embassy in case of any eventualities so all of that must have been ironed out by now all the terms and we are back in afghanistan great job and good good uh, development and we just need to keep going forward and strengthen our relationship with afghanistan again so good development that's my take on this next question ashutosh says don't you think that the russia ukraine war has shown us how incompetent the russian defense forces are as they are losing on every front as shown by the media <laughs> which media are you consuming sir which media the media that we tend to consume in india is the english speaking media now who controls the english speaking media it's the west now on what side is the west they are anti russia pro ukraine so obviously they will show russia as being incompetent and and, uh, and 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 losing everything but take a look at what's on the map i will i'm not going to show the map today i mean the ex exact situation here's the deal here is the situation on the ground today russia has captured approximately 1/4 of ukrainian territory the amount of territory ukraine had before february 24 2022 out of that territory at least 1/4 is now in russia under russian control that is a territory larger than the size of bangladesh or nepal do you think that is incompetence they have been portraying the russian advance as as like the russia see we don't know the, what the russian intentions were or are right they will not telegraph their intentions before they start the war or even while fighting the war in warfare everything is about deception you want the enemy to be confused you want the adversary to not know what your true intentions are like in chess as in war it's all about deception so maybe the russians only wanted certain territories maybe the the donbas region the eastern region of ukraine which is uh, russian speaking mostly majority and the coastal regions in the black sea uh, the ports of kherson odessa etc perhaps odessa is still probably not under control maybe they will take it under control i mean so that's what it could be maybe they don't want to take over the entirety of ukraine but they want to ensure that ukraine can never rise again as a threat against russia and as a puppet of the of the west right so that may have been the intention they have done a good job as if that was the intention that's the, that's what they've already achieved they've taken over a quarter of the entire country they are consolidating their their uh, their positions there they are fully in control of 1/4 of the erstwhile territories of ukraine and 
let's see how it goes. I don't see incompetence. The Western media will only show a certain image. And if you want to consume that wholesale, well, good luck to you. But in, I mean, even the Indian media, you will see various journalists who have been en- who had been embedded with Ukrainian forces. I mean, if you want to po- to to give a balanced picture of a conflict to your people, to your country, shouldn't you also have a few reporters embedded on the other side? But no, they only showed a one-sided picture. So that's where we are. The map, the positions on the ground are very clear. Russia has taken over a quarter of the country. I don't see that as incompetence. Of course, there have been losses on both sides. It's clear that the Ukrainians have lost more. Their armed forces are decimated. They are they are completely dependent on supplies coming in from NATO, from the West. And still, they're not able to retake the territory. And they're, they're gradually losing more if the Russians so desire. I don't see that as incompetence. Of course, the Russians haven't done an outstanding job. They have also suffered casualties and losses. And for that, that's why you need to understand history. You cannot understand current affairs or geopolitics unless you have a good grasp about history. And when it comes to the Russia-Ukraine conflict that's going going on right now, you need to look at the the history of Russia, the past 300 years. Here's the deal. Every time Russia has gone into a conflict, whether it is in the 19th century, whether it is with the Turks, whether it is during World War One or World War Two or whatever, initially they have always suffered catastrophic losses. Always, that's always been the pattern in Russia, in in wars involving Russia or the USSR. Initially, they always suffered disastrous losses, and then they could get back. So that's where we are. In this case, the Russians have not suffered disastrous losses as such, but uh, they would have suffered some losses. They lost uh, one of their major battleships. Yeah. Uh, and uh, maybe some some soldiers and personnel as well. But overall, they are in control. So I don't see this as incompetence. I don't see the Russians have as having suffered setbacks. They have not lost territory. They have gained a substantial amount of territory. They are holding on to it. And the West is not able to do anything about it. Neither is Ukraine. So that's where we are. And uh, that's what the situation is. So I would encourage you to look at a 360-degree perspective. Don't only consume English-speaking media. Look at the French media. Try and translate that. There are translation tools available. Look at what the Germans are saying. Look at what the Russians are saying, their media. Look at what the Chinese are saying. I know it's all, everything is propaganda. Russian news is propaganda. Chinese news is propaganda. Western news is major, major propaganda. But look at everything from a holistic 360 degree perspective. And then you will get a better idea of what's really happening. And the best way to know what's happening in a conflict is is to look at the situation on a map. Who's controlling what? And that tells you clearly there is no incompetence on the Russian side. They have advanced significantly, taken a quarter of the country. So that's where we are. And that's what I have to say about this, sir. All the best. Akash says, why is the Russian Federation sidelined as an eternal enemy by the entire Western world, in spite of them belonging to the same ethnicity and religion? They even fought on the same side in the world wars. Now, why is there such an enmity or rather a hatred amongst the ordinary folks of these European countries towards Russia and weren't they better off being allies of Russia considering their own national interests instead of facing a constant threat from it so to understand this situation we have to again look at history the past thousand years of history the past thousand years of history if you look at it from a big picture perspective it's a history of constant tribal warfare in Europe ethnic strife whether it's the Balkan regions, whether it's the Austro-Hungarian region, uh, Romania, Wallachia, the Ottoman Empire was involved for a very long period of time. Uh, 
the Saxons, the, the German principalities, the Russian Empire, which was for some time, for a significant amount of time, under the Rush, under the Mongol yoke, the Franks, the Merovingians, the the English, the Spaniards, the Portuguese. It's a constant story of ethnic strife, ethnic hatred. I did not even speak about the Italians, and so on. And historically, there's been a major force, one major force in Europe, which is the Roman Catholic Church, the Vatican, right? And they have typically uh, lorded over Europe. Now, the thing is this. The Russians are not quite the same ethnicity as the, as the rest of Europe. Uh, Europe, Western Europe, sees Russia as an Eastern, as an Eastern entity. It, the Western Europe sees Russia as part of the East, ethnically, culturally, etc. Even the Russian religion, the Russian Orthodox Christianity is very different from the Christianity that's practiced in, in other parts of Europe. It's way more traditional. There are lots of elements of paganism in that. Yeah, below the surface. So that's how it is. Uh, and uh, even from an ethnic perspective, uh, the Russians have a lot of, uh, what would you call it? Mongol blood or Turkic blood, lots of them. Yeah. So it's a Russia has been a country that's always expanded eastwards and they've had a lot of dealings in Siberia and Eastern Asia, Eastern Eurasia, and they have intermingled with lots of peoples, nomad, nomadic peoples, etc., the so-called Tatars and so on, who lived in these regions. And over the centuries, these peoples have intermingled. Lots of Russians consider themselves to be Tatars, even they don't look even if they don't look Eastern Asian at all, yeah, uh, I can think of uh, what was that? Uh, there were two siblings, tennis players, uh, of a male and a female, uh, who were both Grand Slam champions. I forget their names, uh, but uh, yeah, they they are Tatars and lots of other people. So Russia is a melting pot of East and West. It's more of East than West, right? So uh, ethnically, they are the ethnicity is different. The Europeans consider Russians to be part of the East. Religion is also different. It's a very, very orthodox and conservative form of Christianity with pagan elements. And if you look at the various conflicts that have happened in Europe, Russia has always has always been kind of an outsider. And as Russia expanded in the 19th century, became more powerful. And there were periods of expansion during the times of Catherine the Great, Peter the Great, Ivan the Terrible, and so on. So Russia has always been seen as a threat, an outside threat to Europe. It's always been that way. Even in the world wars, uh, Russia was, uh, Russia bled a lot. For Let's go to the Second World War. The Russians and the Nazis had a brief agreement, the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, which happened in uh, 1939 or something like that. Yeah, it held for a couple of years. And at that time, Russia was... Uh, technically on the side of the Nazis, on the side of Hitler. And the rest of Europe saw Russia as, as well, the enemy. And it's only when uh, Hitler launched his disastrous Operation Barbarossa that Russia became part of the Allies. And that was a disaster. It was almost a success. The Nazis came to the gates of Moscow, but eventually they were, they were wiped out by the Red Army at the, at the expense of of millions of lives and oceans of blood. So that's how it was. So Europe, we see it as a very civilized, stable place. It's not the case. The First World War and the Second World War were essentially the same conflict, the 30-35-year conflict. And I call it the European Tribal War. That's what it is. Europe has always been a place of ethnic hatreds, old vendettas, 
Look at the Balkans. Look at the history of uh, the, how the French and the Germans and the Italians, the Spanish, the British, they have always fought each other. Lots of petty jealousies and rivalries, all vying for the same piece of the pie. Even in the era of colonialism, they were fighting each other for pieces of other pies. And that's how it is. So overall, if you study history, you will see that the Europeans, especially the Western Europeans, have always seen Russia as, as an outsider, as an Eastern power, as a backward power. They've always considered Russia to be backward. And Eastern. Eastern backward is more or less the same thing in the minds of the Europeans. So that's how it is. And even when you look at uh, the pronouncements and, and the overall um, statements of Dr. S. Joyshankar from, from a geopolitical perspective today, it's clear that he does not view Russia as part of the West. Russia is part of the East. And the Russians too are way closer to India than they are to any part any part of Western Europe and so on, even today or, or in the 20th century. So there's, it's always been that way. And uh, yeah, so that's the situation overall. And there are ethnic <laughs> conflicts and hatreds. Europe is full of these ethnic hatreds. It's all, that's how it is. So that's what I can explain in brief. I would encourage you all to study history because that makes things more clear. That's, that's a lot to unpack. You can have a one-year, uh, two-semester course that will touch upon these things in, 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 a little, in a little bit of depth. And still, it won't be enough. So that's how big this thing is. But overall, Europe sees Russia as an outside force, as an eastern force, as, an, as a backward country. And something to be subdued and something to be scared of rather than something to be embraced. That's how it has always been. Always. Ryo says, share your knowledge about the king of Wallachia, Vlad the Impaler, the way he slaughtered the Ottoman Turks and impaled them alive in a wooden stake, and the way he ruthlessly and ferociously defended Europe from the Ottoman Turks, and on the contrary, why did Indian kings have navy naive and forgiving approach while dealing with all invaders? All right. Yes, we have never spoken about Vlad the Impaler, a very interesting and significant figure, figure in the Europe of the Middle Ages, Vlad the Impaler, the Impaler, what a name, what a sobriquet he had got. So this uh, person was a warlord, you could call him a king or a ruler, in Wallachia, which is uh, in southern Romania. Or so. Let, let's take a look at, look at the map. Where's the map? As you all know, I am a very big fan of the map. So let's go to the map. I hope I have it open somewhere. So where is this part of the world? It's obviously in Europe. So let's bring Europe to the forefront, center of the screen. Yeah. So this is Romania. And Wallachia is somewhere here in the eastern or so part of Romania, maybe towards the south of Romania, roughly, roughly this region, roughly this part of the world. All right. Uh, you can look it up yourselves uh, in greater detail. If uh, yeah, so it's in Romania and in uh, roughly this part of the world. So Vlad the Impaler was a warlord, a voivode of this place in the 15th century, between the 1430s and the 1470s, 1480s. That's that's his. Uh, that's where his lifetime occurred, right? So he ruled over this region two or three times. The first time was around the 14, late 1440s, then in the mid-1450s and 1460s, and again for a while in the 1470s, right? So it was a turbulent, tumultuous life. Uh, he was the son of one of the warlords. His father was also called Vlad, Vlad the First, Vlad the Second, something like that. And as a child, 
Vlad the Impaler and his brother, I forget the name, these two kids were taken hostage by the Ottoman Empire in order to make their father behave. So at that time, the Ottoman Empire was a big deal, very big deal, one of the major, maybe the major power in Europe. And it was, well, an occupying invasive power. They had taken over the Byzantine Empire. Yeah, uh, they had taken over the territory of the Byzantine Empire, uh, Anatolia, which was historically part of Greece and the Eastern Roman Empire and parts of Europe. So let's once again go to the map. So the present day Turkey and the present day Balkan regions, parts of uh, Romania and the extent and influence of the Ottoman Empire was vast at the time. Okay, so that's how it was. That's uh, That was the situation at the time. I hope the, the, my image is clear. I hope it's clear. If it is not, let me know and I will try and fix it. I think it's clear, I hope, yeah. Right, so, so this was a situation. So the Ottoman Empire was a major power in this region. They were a brutal occupying power. And all these various uh, ethnicities and nationalities in Europe, Eastern Europe, etc., were attempting to free themselves from this horrific, terrifying, brutal, barbaric yoke of the Turks. Right. So one of these freedom fighters was this was this person, Vlad the Impaler. So, so like I said, he was hostage for a while. He and his brother in the court of the Ottomans. Uh, the Ottoman Sultan at the time was. There were two sultans who uh, were in power during the lifetime of Vlad the Impaler. The first one was Murad the second, and the second one was Mohammed the second. I think uh, he's also known as uh, he, he's a very significant Ottoman king, right? Mohammed the second. So uh, eventually, what happens is that this guy Vlad goes back to his his country, his territory. He becomes the voivode or the warlord or the ruler of the place. And he wages a conflict. He wages a war against the Ottomans, against the Turks. And sometime in the, 19, in the, in the 1460s, the Turks try to invade his territory. He fights back. He takes the fight to Ottoman territory. He fights a battle against an army made up of Turks and Bulgarians. And he massacres... I mean, he defeats this army. There are more than 20, 30, 40,000 casualties. I don't remember the exact number. And what he does is frightful. He, What he does is all these uh, dead soldiers and those who were captured, he impales them on wooden stakes in the ground. You take a stake, you put it in the ground, yeah, a spear point kind of thing. You place it in the ground, standing up, and then you impale a human body on top of it. Frightful. It was one of the ways of torturing and, and executing people. Very painful, very horrible, obviously. Very brutal. But Vlad realized that this is the only language the Turks understand. Yeah. So what he did was he impaled, I don't know how many people, tens of thousands, maybe 20, 30, 40,000 Turkish and Bulgarian soldiers in one location. It's like a forest of impaled corpses. So when the Ottomans came again that way, they encountered this incredibly frightening sight 20 30000 of maybe 40000 of their own troops impaled on 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 stakes in the ground an entire forest of such uh, impaled corpses 
and the Ottoman Sultan Mehmed II was extraordinarily impressed. He said that a, a, a man, a ruler, who can do such great deeds should not be defeated and should, not, should be treasured, that sort of thing. So like I said, Vlad spoke. The, Vlad knew which language the Turks spoke and he spoke to them in their language. And uh, eventually it was a tumultuous life. He, he was defeated a couple of times. He went out of power, then he came back to power. He even fought the Saxons, the Germans and so on. And over time, what happened is that these uh, stories about him began to proliferate. And that's how he got the title of Vlad the Impaler. And lots of stories of extreme cruelty uh, started spreading because mainly through the Saxons, the Germans, because he was their enemy too. And when somebody is your enemy, you typically try, try to indulge in propaganda warfare and try to portray that person as a very barbaric and cruel and evil person. So that's how these stories proliferated. And so that's that's the thing about Vlad the Impaler. That in brief is his life. He, I think he died in the 1470s. Yeah. Uh, at the end of a very eventful life. Now, the thing is this. He he belonged to a lineage called the House of the Dragon. I think that's what it's, it was called. The House of the Dragon. And the word for dragon in the Romanian language is Dracul. So he was called Vra, Vlad Draculia. Vlad the Dragon. And the, the, the Irish writer, the British writer, Bram Stoker, took inspiration from this region, Romania, the Carpathian region, where there, there are these folk tales of, of Nosferatu, the vampire. And he tied that with the name of this lineage, Draculia. And he created this, this character of Dracula, right? The very famous vampire story, Dracula. So that was inspired by the story of Vlad Draculia, Vlad the, the dragon. So that, in brief, is the story of Vlad the Impaler. He was ruthless. He defended his country. He defended Europe by, by extension from the Turks. And uh, he was one of the, he is considered a national hero in Romania, I believe. So he understood what language the Turks uh, spoke. And he spoke to them in their language, the language of brutality and barbarity. And maybe Indian kings were a little forgiving. Yeah. We Indians are way too civilized. When, it, when, when you deal with barbarians, you have to deal with them in their language, in, in their terms. I think we kind of uh, did not quite get it. So yeah, that's one deficiency we our, our rulers overall typically have had. Not all, but most of them. So that's, yeah, that's just facts. Okay, Saurabh says, who was Zoroaster? What's his history? And who is Ahura Mazda, the god of Zoroaster? And what was the culture of Persia before him? So we don't quite know when this person, Zoroaster, lived. Uh, he most likely lived about 3,000 or so years ago, roughly, give or take. Yeah. So who was this, uh, this person? His name was Zarathustra. Right? Zarathustra. So in Sanskrit, the, the word Ustra or Ustra means camel. And the word Zarath most likely means either yellow or old. So Zarathustra either means yellow camel or old camel yeah in sanskrit and sanskrit was the the language of ancient persia the old persian language was like an upper branch dialect of sanskrit that's how it was so zarathustra means either yellow camel or old camel or maybe golden camel or something like that yeah that's what it means clearly ustra means camel so that's who he was and now he came up with this uh, 
religion he said the god the great god ahura mazda uh, i don't know he came to me in my dream or what i don't know what the exact uh, foundational myth is but he was the first prophet and the first originator of a revealed religion which is uh, which is now called zoroastrianism the 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 and that was adopted by the persian empire the achaemenid empire the hakshamanish empire and this uh, cult this religion zoroastrianism became the state religion of persia so that's what it is we don't know exactly when he lived it's kind of lost in the mists of history it is believed that he was born in bahlik in balkh which is present day afghanistan which is presently in afghanistan currently i think that's where he was born that's where it, he is believed to have been born right and uh, for and somehow he was able to uh, propagate his his uh, belief system which is an inversion the zoroastrian uh, zoroastrian belief system is essentially an inversion of the vedic religion so the devas in 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 vedic traditions the devas are have a positive connotation and the asuras have a kind of slightly negative connotation not all asuras are bad but asuras are kind of on the opposing side of the devas so in the the uh, zoroastrian system the devas become the evil guys and the ahuras asuras or ahuras become the good guys that's how it is and uh, the greatest of the ahuras or asuras is ahura mazda the great god and that's how it is but what people don't realize is that zoroastrianism is not a monotheistic belief system there's a multitude of gods and divinities and all that right so it is just as polytheistic as their ancestral religion was vedic hinduism so what was the culture of persia before zoroastrianism obviously it was hinduism vedic vedic hinduism what we call hinduism now it was the vedic culture traditions and if you want to call it religion religion so before zoroaster before zarathustra the culture of persia was the same as the culture of india the persians are descendants of an ancient indian clan that was defeated in a great vedic era battle the battle of the 10 to 15 or 20 kings it was more than 10 and one of these defeated clans was the parshva clan the parshu the parshu or the parshva clan right and they went westwards they escaped all the all of the clans that were defeated were expelled out of india they had to escape in order to survive it was the bharatas under the great king sudas who won this conflict and because of that india is now known as bharat so that's in that's in brief so the persians are the descendants of the parshva clan of the rigvedic people they were the descendants of indians and it's even today you see similarities in language culture and so on now the culture is obviously a shia mostly shia islam yeah but there are strata of culture that lie below that and you can see some some traces of their original culture deep deep below yeah so that's what it is Kiran says, "Should billionaires exist?" Jeff Bezos spent five point five billion dollars on a ten-minute space trip. Elon Musk said, "Spent forty-seven billion dollars on an underground tunnel system to solve traffic. The tunnels ended up being exclusive to Tesla cars. That much money could have been spent on improving public transport. Most billionaires spend money in a selfish manner. Should there be an upper cap on wealth? Well." his highness the great bernie sanders wants billionaires to be abolished and he wants them to be taxed and he says there should be no billionaires see if you have billionaires it's because the system allows billionaires to to rise uh the us is an out and out capitalist country 
the system is fully capitalistic right nowadays there is more of a pro marxist kind of uh, reconfiguration the society is becoming more and more pro left that's a different story but historically the us has been a capitalist society and there is no cap on how wealthy you can become in that and that's why you have this massive wealth inequality in the us the top 2% of the, the uh, wealth is owned by no no 80% of the wealth is owned by 2% of the, of the people or something like that you know roughly like that massive massive wealth and income disparities and people who are below the poverty line or near the poverty line are forced to work two three jobs a day 14 15 16 hours a day in order to just bring a little bit of food to the table for the families that's the kind of incredibly unequal unequal system it is in the us if you are wealthy it's a wonderful place to live in you have the whole world is open to you but if you're not wealthy it's 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 terrible so the question is is should billionaires exist listen i have nothing against billionaires uh the, the system encourages competition the system encourages innovation and people who do this will accrue the rewards of that you innovate you compete well and you come out on top you're going to be very wealthy that's how it is now i think the billionaires are taxed very less and all that so there are pros and cons to this thing i don't think we should abolish billionaires maybe billionaires see once you have earned a certain amount of wealth it's yours and you can do whatever you want with it right you could donate it to charity like some people pretend to do charities that have certain purposes yeah or you could just splurge it all or whatever so it's up to them i say i i would i would say i would definitely want billionaires and wealthy people to live responsible lives and contribute to society i mean you become wealthy when you contribute something to society you don't become wealthy by stealing wealth these people in a capitalistic system you have to solve the problems that society is facing you have to offer value to society in exchange you acquire wealth that's how it works and i think that's a fair trade obviously you can't have a capitalist system in which the only objective is quarter upon quarter profit and a never ending expansion at the expense of the resources and the environment environment of our planet so that's what we have in the west and that's why the world has, the environment is in such trouble today because of the extremely uh, irresponsible way in which these corporations expand i mean consider a television set <laughs> uh these days we have these flat screen TVs these TVs they cost a lot of money to make they it takes a lot of resources and in, in the various kinds of rare earths and various metals and various things that you have to extract out of the earth's surface yeah to manufacture one TV these TVs will cost i don't know whatever it costs 50000 rupees 100000 rupees whatever depending on the size configuration and so on these flat screen TVs typically last 2 or 3 years and then the screen goes blank and you have to dump it in the trash and buy a new one these companies they make sure these TVs don't last long yeah so that you have to keep buying new television sets every couple of years and all of it's it's a perfectly good machine but the screen goes blank and you have to replace it that's what happens isn't that an incredibly irresponsible waste of resources that's what's destroying the planet whether it's TVs whether it is uh, cell phones they want you to keep buying new devices every couple of years or every year ideally and that is what's destroying the planet and many of these billionaires they become billionaires by indulging in such practices and that's not frowned upon and at the end of the day they blame india and china for pollution so the overall system needs to be looked at and it's it needs to be uh, reformed on an urgent basis uh 
but i would not blame elon musk or jeff bezos alone solely for this elon musk is not so elon musk hasn't been indulging in such practices his his companies are not overall that bad for the environment he has this solar company which is reasonably good which is actually trying to solve a certain problem that we should not uh, extract uh, we should not use fossil fuels for for uh, electricity we should use solar power it's a good thing the tesla uh, company it's all about uh, electric vehicles that doesn't quite solve the problem because you can generate electricity by burning coal for instance and the lithium ion batteries they use are not quite good for the environment so there are problems everywhere but uh, it needs to be looked at judiciously we should not straight away abolish billionaires and if that happens then people will not have any incentive to work hard and innovate and make the world a better place so there have to be there's there's given this given take this pros and cons uh, overall capitalism is not completely bad but it has to be done responsibly not at the expense of the planet and not the, at the expense of other countries so that's how it is but i don't see these problems being solved anytime soon so that's where we are so i would say that it's the western capitalistic system which is the root cause of all of this the good as well as the bad lakshya says i recently saw a video in which a romuva wedding was being performed so what is romuva romuva is the indigenous religion of lithuania the pre christian religion and culture of of lithuania yeah where is lithuania let's take a look at the map just in case you're not aware lithuania is over here yeah western europe northwestern europe the baltic sea latvia lithuania estonia the three baltic nations that were once part of the ussr and here you have kaliningrad which is a different story so that's lithuania uh so you uh, lakshya saw a video in which a romuva wedding was being performed in accordance with vedic rituals and i expect there would have been a vedic priest yeah Uh, who would be perform an indian vedic priest who would perform who would officiate over this ritual so the question is can we encourage europe to rediscover and embrace its pre christian cultures good question so there is a certain underground movement in europe which uh, whose objective is to rediscover uh, the pre christian traditions and embrace those traditions and bring them again to the forefront so you have the romuva movement in lithuania latvia also i suppose you have uh, something called uh, there is a nordic revivalism also there is a religion called asatru or something which kind of is uh, is a 21st century uh, embrace of the nordic religion in which you had these the gods like thor odin and so freya and so on and so forth which is well the the nordic viking pantheon was was a, a reflection of the old vedic pantheon the entirety of europe had the same culture overall with different local manifestations and different names of the gods but overall it was the same even in the slavic regions there is a movement to kind of rediscover the old slavic heritage which is again a continuation of the ancient vedic heritage yeah so that's what's happening at a certain level in europe it's still very much underground it's still very much in a small minority but these movements are being are, are visible in various parts of europe so the question is can we encourage europe to rediscover and, and embrace its pre christian cultures see that will happen only see if you look at india today everybody is trying to copy and ape the west 
Look at the teenagers of today. Look at the kids. Look at Gen Z, Zoomers. What are they doing? They're trying to copy the West. They're trying to ape the West. Why is it? Because the West is so dominant. Because the West is cool. Yeah? The West has very positive and powerful connotations. People want to be cool. People want to copy those who are powerful. In ancient Europe, everybody wanted to be Roman. Everybody wanted to copy Roman styles of, of uh, architecture, sculpture, the way of life and all that. So whichever is the dominant culture, overall, statistically, most people want to copy that, ape that. That's what happens. So if we want Europe to rediscover and embrace its pre-Christian cultures, we in India, our nation needs to rise as a civilization and become one of the dominant powers in the world. Then the pre-Christian traditions will be cool again. So for this cultural shift to happen, India has to rise again. India has to reclaim its historical preeminent role in, in, in the world, economically, militarily, and culturally. India is currently defined as a, so, as a secular socialist nation state. India has to reclaim its position as a civilization, as a civilization state. Right now we are not there. So when that happens, the pre-Christian cultures of Europe will become cool again. Right now they're not cool. They're just a small minority, an underground movement. So all of you together need to come together and make India rise again. Once that happens, this cultural change will happen. Sparka Kaiser says, I started. I just started reading about the White Huns, the Heptalites. Why did the Heptalites destroy Takshashila? Taxila? What's Taxila? It's Takshashila. Why did these people, the Heptalites, the White Huns, the Shweta Hunas, destroy Takshashila University if they assimilated in Indian culture? Assuming that they did it while invading, why didn't they rebuild it to repay the destruction they had done if they respected Indian culture? Some stories had Hindu versus Buddhism angle. Can you please clarify this? All right. Okay, so where is Takshashila? Takshashila is in uh, Western India. Now it's in Pakistan. Somewhere in present-day Pakistani Punjab. Let's take a look. Takshashila. Where is Takshashila? And it's going to zoom in there. Right, it's somewhere here. Takshashila. They call it Taxila. The British call it Taxila. And now, like I said, Indians want to ape that and say Taxila. It's not Taxila. It's Takshashila. So it's in... Um, it's in northwest India, or present day Pakistan, right? So that's where it is. Now, what's the history? This, this is one of the oldest known universities in the entire world. Maybe the maybe the oldest known university in the ancient world, in the entire world. I mean, it was a it was a major university during the time of the Mauryan Empire. The great uh, the great uh, statesman Vishnugupta Chanakya is known to have taught there. It's believed that he taught something which would we would now call political science. Yeah, So he was a professor there. That's about two and a half thousand years before today. So it was a very big university at that time itself. It may not have been a university in the present day definition of university with semesters and professors and, and that uh, professors would be there. But it would have been done differently in certain ways, but it was very much one of the oldest and greatest seats of learning the world has ever seen. 
right so that is where takshashila was in 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 punjab now it's a, it's it's ruined and we know it's the white huns who destroyed it typically most of the great universities in india we had lots of them dozens of them most of them if not all of them were destroyed by the invading turks in the past 1000 years but in the case of takshashila it is the invading shweta hunas that destroyed it most likely during the during the time of mihirkula right so what is the deal why did these people do this why did the huns do this as you if they had assimilated in indian culture so we have to understand the chronology of what happened so uh in the uh when was this so it's in the 4th 5th centuries etc that these invasions happened first of all the the hunic invasions happened under the first major king we know of was called kingila and this individual he carved out a piece of territory for himself in northwest india present day afghanistan or that region right so that is in the uh, early 5th early to mid to late 5th century this guy ruled in that region between 430 and 490 ad right so that is the first piece of territory carved out of india by the huns now before uh this guy you had many waves of invasion so for instance during the gupta period when skanda gupta was still a young man he was still a teenager his father kumara gupta was the emperor at that time the hunic raids the hunic invasions began in india and skanda gupta proved his mettle as a warrior as a leader of men as a leader of armed forces in repelling these invasions wave after wave of invasion and afterwards eventually skanda gupta became the emperor of india and, and he spent his entire life repelling these hunic invasions he spent his entire life defending india from the huns so this was between 450 and 470 or so ad right this was the time period and because of this purely defensive maneuver which happened over decades the treasury of the gupta empire was kind of depleted and after that the gupta empire underwent a kind of decline right so uh kingila became king in a small region in afghanistan far away from from the main mainland present day mainland of india then you had a king called toramana i think he was the son of kingila if i'm not mistaken so he was in power for about 20 or so years 20 25 years the son of toramana was mihirkula mihirkula carved out a massive empire in western india northern and western india and he was in power for about 30 or so years roughly now this guy mihirkula was a total barbarian he was an atheist the chinese pilgrim song yun came to india and he wrote a travelogue or whatever and he said this guy mihirkula was a complete atheist he was a barbarian he committed all kinds of atrocities against the buddhists and he also was despised by the brahmins so he was despised by all indians he was a brutal barbaric king he was an atheist he believed in no god and he was a very destructive and evil person cruel person it is uh, around this period around this phase that takshashila was destroyed i'm not sure who exactly destroyed it whether it was toramana or mihirkula or whatever but it's around this time that it happened most likely during the time of mihirkula between 520 and 540 ad right so so he was an atheist he despised all kinds of uh, religious displays and all i, I suppose he uh, perpetrated various kinds of atrocities against the brahmins against the against the buddhists at that time there was a lot of buddhism in india if you consider that to be a separate religion technically historians do that it's it's the same thing once again i'm going to get nice comments down there don't care it's all right so that's what happened 
So it's around this time that Takshashila was destroyed. Now, like I said, Meher Kola was an atheist. He did not quite like Indian culture. Afterwards, you had other Hunnic kings like Shri Pravarasena from the mid-500s to about 590 AD. So this guy was very much uh, Indianized. Maybe he had an Indian ancestor, maybe his mother or whatever. Yeah. And then you had other Hunnic kings who eventually assimilated within Indian society and who became great patrons of Indian culture. For instance, the great scientist Brahma Gupta, who was born in 598 AD. He lived in Gurjardesh, Billamal, right? Present day Binmal. He lived under the patronage of a supposedly Hunnic king called Vyagramuk. Now, this guy Vyagramuk was a great patron of culture, of science, all that. And he was the patron of the great scientist, astronomer, mathematician, Brahmagupta. So over time, over the period of a century or a century and a half, the Huns, they first fought India, then they ruled over India in a brutal manner. And slowly, within after a certain amount of time, they became completely Indianized and they became great patrons of Indian culture, of the Indian sciences and all that. So that's how it happened. It did not happen overnight. So initially they were destructive. Initially they had cruel kings like Mihirkul, like maybe like Kingila and so on. Toramana. Uh, but Kingila is believed to have been the guy <laughs> who constructed the Buddhas in Bamiyan. So that's also, that's also there. So maybe it was only Mihirkula who was cruel and, and brutal. So that's how it is. Now certain historians today are trying to politicize this matter. And they are trying to portray it as a Hindu versus Buddhist thing. These historians have political agendas. We know who they are. I'm not naming them today. I have named them in the past. Right? So they say, if you, I think if you look at Wikipedia, for instance, it will be mentioned most likely that Mihirkula was a Shaivite, a worshipper of Rudra, and he was anti-Buddhist. Anti That's what they mention, I think, in Wikipedia, if you look it up. That is not true. That is a complete outright lie and falsification. The Chinese pilgrims who came to India in search of wisdom and knowledge and learning, they all are unanimous in their assessment of Mirkula that he was somebody who was anti-all religion and anti-culture. He was anti-Brahmin, anti-Buddhist, anti-everything, anti-Indian. He despised Indian culture, Mirkula. Even Xuanzang, who came a couple of centuries later, he also portrayed Mirkula as a tyrant and a persecutor of all Indian uh, religious and other figures, right? So that's how it is. So these, uh, these narratives that this was Hindu persecution of Buddhism, these are lies. No such thing. Okay, so that's about this matter. Hope it throws some light and clarity on this and you can, you can do some further research if you can, if you wish to. Akash says, why were the erstwhile German Empire and later Nazi Empire so eager to, de to declare wars on their adjacent countries? Why did they act in such an aggressive manner consecutively under 25 years? And can we hold them responsible for the world wars? Okay, German Empire and Nazi Germany. So we have to understand something. In the 19th century, until the mid-19th century, there was no such thing as Germany. You had Prussia, which is, I think, northern Germany. You had Saxony, and you had a whole confederation, loose confederation, of various German principalities, various German states, essentially independent, independent kingdoms. That's what it was. Germany was never united. 
the unification happened in 1871 and the architect of this unification was the great uh, uh, Bismarck, the German Chancellor Bismarck. He is the man who unified Germany. He fought wars to unify Germany. He fought the Austro-Hungarian Empire. He fought the French. He took some territory from the French. And under him, the entirety of Germany was the, for the first time ever unified. From the Roman times, Germany was a hodgepodge of various tribes who essentially had shared ethnicity and language, but who were always at loggerheads with each other. Right? So it's always been that way. So Germany was unified properly as a nation state for the first time in 1871, at the end of the Franco-German War, I believe. And the Empire of Germany was declared in 1871 in the Palace of Versailles in France. And uh, yeah, so that's what happened. And after 1871, Germany embarked upon a rapid and... Uh, very successful phase of reforms and industrialization. Germany became a major, the major industrial power in Europe. It leapfrogged all other European powers in a very brief period of time. Full rapid industrialization, reforms in society, a more modern society and so on. And then there was a buildup of, of the Navy under the German Kaiser Wilhelm II at the turn, turn of the century, between the, 18th and the, between the 19th and the 20th centuries. So as the German Navy became more powerful, this guy, the Kaiser Wilhelm, Wilhelm II, he wanted a powerful Navy. And quickly, rapidly, the German Navy became maybe the most powerful Navy in the world, or maybe the second most powerful Navy in the world after the British Royal Navy. And that's what caused, that's what caused tensions. Now, there's a whole bunch of events that happened in the early 20th century. There were, uh, the Ottoman Empire was crumbling. There, were, there, were, there was conflict in the Balkans. The Austro-Hungarians annexed Bosnia. They had designs on other parts of the Balkans. The Balkans declared independence from the Ottoman Empire. Lots and lots of things happened. Yeah. And then there was this incident in 1914, in June or June 1914, when the heir to the throne of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, Franz Ferdinand II, I believe his name was, he went on a visit to Sarajevo. Uh, in the Balkans, yeah, and he was assassinated there by Gavrilo Princip, who was a Bosnian, a Croat with Serbian background or something like that. And so the heir to the throne was assassinated. The Austro-Hungarians declared war in a couple of months on Serbia. Serbia was allied to Russia. And before declaring war on Serbia, the Austro-Hungarians spoke, uh, asked their allies in Germany, should we go ahead with the war? And Germany said, yeah, 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 sure, go ahead. So it was a big mess in Europe. Austria-Hungary was allied with the German Empire and also allied with the Italians. The Serbians were allied with Russia. The Russians were allied with the French. Britain was in splendid isolation for some time. And the French and the Italians had a secret agreement of of, uh, that they would not go to war against each other. So when the Austro-Hungarians declared war on Serbia, the Russians declared war on Austro-Hungary because they were allies of Serbia. And that, because the Russians were allies of France, Austro-Hungary also became uh, the enemy of France. And because Germany was the ally of Austro-Hungary, Germany went to war with France and Russia and the whole continent of Europe, Europe went to war. Like it, it, it was like um, 
like a sudden explosion of ammunition. That's what happened. So the war, the First World War, we call it the First World War, this event in 1914, it was triggered by the Austro-Hungarian attempt to invade Serbia. And once this happened, the Germans went to war again with the Russians and the French. So it was started by the Austro-Hungarians. And then the Russians, the, the Germans obviously uh, behaved in a very aggressive manner. They tried to go for Paris. They took over Luxembourg and Belgium. Belgium. Belgium gave them a lot of resistance. The moment the Germans invaded Belgium, the British got involved because they had uh, guaranteed the neutrality of Belgium. And the reason why the Germans had to go through Belgium was because the German-French border was highly fortified and very well defended by the French. So that's how the whole thing started and it went on. The Ottomans got involved. Winston Churchill tried to invade the Dardanelles, the Gallipoli invasion, which was a complete disaster, and so much happened. At the end of the second of the, of the First World War, in 1918, after the two Russian revolutions and so on, the, then there was this, this, uh, this treaty was signed, the Treaty of Versailles, I think, where the German Empire had been declared, the same place. In this treaty, the Germans were held solely responsible for everything, and they were made to pay very heavy reparations to the other countries. So this was considered to be a national humiliation and a very unfair treaty by the German nation with some truth to it. I mean, all the blame cannot be on Germany. Of course, the Austro-Hungarians are the ones who started it. But the Austro-Hungarians suffered a complete dismantling of their empire. The Ottoman Empire was also dismantled and Germany was made to pay very heavy reparations and they were forced to sign on the line saying that they are solely responsible for the war. And this was in 1918, I believe. And there was a 20-year period of no war in Europe. But this treaty in Versailles was the root cause of World War II. Which again, in, in the case of World War II, it is because Hitler came to power because the people were very deeply uh, upset about the state of the economy and all that. And they were... They felt humiliated by the Treaty of Versailles. So Hitler came to power on a wave of nationalism. And he obviously was an evil person. He did horrific things. But his overall message to the people is that I will restore German pride. And I will regain the territories that Germany was made to cede in 1918, 1919, 1920, that, that time. So Germany was made to lose a lot of territory at the end of World War I. Poland was recreated. They lost territory to, to, the, to Belgium, to France and uh, some other territories as well. You can look it up. So overall, World War II started because the Germans felt deeply humiliated by the terms of the Treaty of Versailles. They were made to pay incredible amounts of money in reparations for a war that they were not alone in starting, and so on. So that is the story of World War I, World War II. Of course, Hitler was very greedy. He had taken over the entirety of Europe by 1941, and all that was left was the UK. And then he made a fatal miscalculation. Instead of finishing off the UK, which was of course supported by the Americans, instead of finishing off the UK, he turned eastwards and he invaded the USSR, with which he had a non-aggression pact. And it was a very, very, very successful in in invasion using the, using the same blitzkrieg tactics. They captured massive amounts of Russian territory. Within the first few months, 3 million Russian soldiers had died. I always say this, don't I? That the Russians, they start every war terribly. 
So that's what happened. The, Russia, the Germans made incredible rapid advances into Russia. They had three different directions in which they were going. They had this A2 line from Arkhangelsk to uh, Astrakhan, which they wanted to, ca- to capture. And they came within a stone's throw of Moscow. But the Russians just kept fighting. They kept dying, but they came, kept coming back. They had about 14 to 15 million reserve soldiers, well-trained soldiers who had got gone back into civilian life, but who could be called back at any time. That's what the Russians had. That's why every country needs reserve soldiers. The lessons of history. Anyhow, big, big story. I can go on for, for hours about this, but that's what happened. So, uh, this, it's a very complex topic. The war, World War I, was started by the Austro-Hungarians, not the Germans, but the Germans jumped on that, on that bandwagon. World War II was started by Germany to avenge the incredible humiliation they suffered in 1918-1919, the Treaty of Versailles. That's how it is. And they paid the price for that. Asmita says, here are my questions. What was the reason behind dividing Germany post-World War II? Why uh, did the World War II impact UK economically but not the US? Why many of the defeated countries became vassal states but not colonies of the US? Why could the USSR not have such subordinate states in Europe? So this is a continuation to, uh, of what I was saying. At the end of World War II, Germany was defeated. The Russians, the Red Army took Berlin. The Americans took part of western parts of Germany. That became the dividing line of the Cold War. The Iron Curtain. So Berlin was divided into two camps, the eastern camp and the western camp. The western camp was under the uh, under the rule of the USA, and the eastern part of Berlin was ruled by the USSR. And the portions of Germany which the USSR had captured became East Germany. The portions of the, of Germany which the Americans had captured, along with their various allied uh, minions, that became West Germany. At the end of World War II, Britain was spent. It was a spent force. Why did the UK become a spent force? It's because they had, even in World War I, they were forced to rely on American supplies, food grains, wheat, arms, ammunition, steel, all of that in World War I in order to fight back and survive that World War I. So by the end of World War I, the UK was indebted to the Americans. Even other countries in Europe were indebted to the Americans. In World War II, it went even worse. The UK was the only country that was holding out to Nazi Germany. And they were able to hold out only because of this constant stream of supplies from across the Atlantic, from the US, to their country. Enormous amounts of arms, ammunition, food, all of that. Without that, the the UK would would have fallen to the Nazis. And they took all of this, they acquired all of this on credit, on loan from the US. So at the end of World War II, the US, the UK was deeply in debt to the US. The US is a massive continent-sized country, free land which they have stolen from the natives. Enorm- an inexhaustible supply of resources from that land. There, there, there is so much farmland. You can produce enormous amounts of wheat. There are so many mines, so many... Um, the industries can be built out of all of that. So the US had an inexhaustible supply of resources. 
and they were protected on one side by the atlantic ocean and the other side by the pacific by the pacific pacific ocean so it's a country that has no enemies they have established complete hegemony in north america and south america and so nobody could touch the us and the european nations by the end of world war 2 were heavily indebted to the us i believe the uk is still paying back back the debt of world war 2 i nobody wants to speak about this but i believe the uk is even today in 2022 paying back the debt to the us which they had acquired in world war 2 that's the situation yeah so that's how it happened so at the end of world war 2 the uk was a spent force it was no longer a great nation a, a top tier world power it became a second class world power the only two victors in world war 2 at the end of world war 2 were the ussr and the us and these became the two superpowers that's what happened uh and western western europe was taken over by the us the only major power even today in western europe is the us germany is under permanent us military occupation italy is under permanent military occupation today the uk is a, is a vassal state of the of the us and that's how it happened it's a long complex story but that is how it happened and the ussr took over the entirety of eastern europe the soviet bloc countries the warsaw pact countries poland czechoslovakia yugoslavia hungary hungary to some extent bulgaria these became us U, ussr's satellite states and so on so that's what happened so it's not like the ussr did not have any subordinate states or satellite states they acquired a significant amount of control over eastern europe and i believe uh, the hungarians tried to was it hungary i think it was hungary that tried to rebel in uh, 1956 there were two rebellions i think there was one in hungary and and one in czechoslovakia you can look up the exact details uh and 2000 soviet tanks rolled into the country that's what happened i think one of these things was in 1956 so uh yeah that's what happened and that is the story in brief very interesting uh, period of history the the second world war which immediately gave rise to the cold war in which the entire world got involved so in 1956 the the british made one last attempt at regaining uh, a great power status they invaded suez al suez which is the suez canal region in egypt so what happened is that uh, the the leader the ruler of egypt nasser gamal abdel nasser he nationalized the suez canal which was run by a british owned company i believe yeah so he nationalized it he acquired it and he said that this this is our territory it belongs to the people of egypt and we should rule it we should control it in retaliation the british and the french invaded this region suez port said and all that and they took it over very rapidly but the americans armed twisted the british into withdrawing so the british withdrew the french realized they could no longer trust the british they also had to withdraw and from there onwards there was a ussr angle all this israel was involved it's a long story so it is in 1956 that it became official that the uk is now a second class world power it is firmly under the heel of the us and that's how it has been so it's a very very detailed complex long story i'm trying to make it as short as possible but i would encourage you all to study to read this to read what actually happened in this period of time very interesting period of history very tumultuous period of history with lots of tragic events and all but that's how human history always is
Eric says, uh, thank you for the content you post. Very interesting. Thank you. I had a question about the US fighting the British to gain independence. How can that tie into the theory that it, there was just a simple capital transfer from London, UK to Washington, DC? I think looking at the English-speaking countries as one is not accurate. You also did mention that Nehru chose to align with the USSR instead of communism uh, because of communism when the US had offered India the military technological advances and so on. But because Nehru was a British appointee, he chose the USSR. How would things have looked had India chosen to align with the US? Okay. So this is something I, I believe I am the only person who has said this. That, that after World War II, there was a transfer of the headquarters of the Anglo-Saxon Empire from London, UK to Washington, DC. I don't think anybody else has said this. Soon other geopolitical analysts and strategists will start saying this, that's going to happen. But thus far, I am the only person who has said this. And I understand why people don't uh, believe that or, 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 or find or, or are skeptical about this claim. But that's what really happened. And we have seen these things happen, these transfers of headquarters from Rome to Constantinople. It's happened in the past. Now, it's true. The US and the British had a very antagonistic adversarial relationship for a very long time. From the US War of Independence, what was the trigger, the cause for the US War of Independence? Because the Americans of that time, of the 18th century, were British. They were British subjects. They served the British crown. They paid taxes to the British crown, to the King of England. And the question they asked themselves is, why should we keep paying taxes to a ruler who sits all the way across the Atlantic, thousands of miles away. Why should we pay taxes to him? What is he contributing to us? What is he doing for us? Why should we not take keep all of this money for ourselves that we are extracting out of the resources and the territory of the US? So that's why they fought this war of independence. It was for financial reasons, for monetary reasons. It was out of greed. It was out of mutual greed. The British king, the king of England, wanted the taxes he was enjoying from the US, his colony in the US. And the settlers, the British settlers in the US asked themselves, why should we keep paying these taxes? Why should we not keep all of this wealth for ourselves? That was the cause of the war. Eventually, the, the Americans won the war. They became independent of the, of the British, of the English. That's what happened. And even after that, there were lots of conflicts between the United States and the, and the, and the British and the UK which went on until the 20th century. yeah, And yet, eventually, the British came under the heel of the US. There is this very... Uh, you may have heard of what's called the Thucydides trap. When you have an existing power with a certain sphere of influence and a new emerging power appears and tries to take claim a piece of that pie, conflict is inevitable. And this is something you see over and over and over again, over thousands of periods, thousands of years of, of human history, of world history. Whenever an existing power feels threatened by an emerging power in the same sphere of influence, conflict is inevitable. Yeah. And yet there was no conflict ever after the, the, the American War of Independence between the US and the British. Because their interests aligned for a long, long period of time. Of course, the British still were a major power. They still had their so-called British Empire until the, 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 the World War II era. And then the Americans took over the whole thing. Because the British became deeply, deeply indebted to the Americans. And the Americans had the military firepower to subdue the British anytime they wanted if they stopped repaying the debt. 
So at the root of everything is hard power. The British Navy, they, they lost a significant portion of, of their Navy in 1947. The British Indian Navy became the Indian Navy. Right? It controlled the entire Indian Ocean region from Malacca to, to Hormuz to, to Bab al-Mandib, Singapore, all of that. They lost that. They lost uh, eventually the control of Suez. So their empire crumbled essentially within a decade or so. And the Americans took over the reins of everything. So that is what happened. If you no historian says it in these words, that the British Empire continued in the form of the American Empire. But that's essentially what happened. You have to look at all the supply chains. What are empires built on? They are built on military power, on economic power. Economic power, is it all depends on infrastructure, supply chains, railroads, uh, trade roads, all those things. So if you look at what happened, nothing disappeared. All the infrastructure of the British Empire remained intact after the 1940s. But it was all taken over and built upon, enhanced by the Americans. So that's what happened. Now, when, when it comes to Nehru, he was an Anglophile, but he was a Fabian socialist. And that's why he was deeply uh, in awe of the, the kind of industrialization the USSR had achieved in a very short period of time. He wanted to replicate that in India, but in a Fabian socialist manner, which means at a very slow rate, very slow pace of improvement. 1%, 2%, 3% growth per year. That is called the Nehruvian rate of growth. That's why he aligned himself with the USSR instead of the US, despite the US offering India nuclear technology and a seat on the permanent seat on the UN Security Council. So that's what happened. Had so because Nehru was there, this was never possible. Had somebody else been there, hypothetically, if Subhash Bose was in power, he may have chosen to align with the US. And then that would have been a, a difficult dance to play. Because the Americans wanted a new vassal state, a major country like the like India, to become part of their uh, geopolitical grouping. So there was there's always the danger that when you align yourself with the interests of a bigger, larger, more powerful country, you become a satellite state. India became a satellite state of the USSR until 1991, when the USSR broke up. India was a de facto Russian satellite state. So. Had India aligned with the US, the, in, India could possibly have become a US satellite state. It, it's possible. It's entirely possible. But what was better on balance? The kind of uh, the, the kind of decay and corruption India witnessed from the 1950s to, 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 recent, to, to until very recently, or a more rapid rate of growth, the kind of growth Japan saw, for instance. When a country, in 1947, India... India amounted for less than 2% of the world's GDP. India had a population of 300 plus million individuals. The life expectancy in 1947 was about, I don't know, 28, 30, 32, thereabouts. That's how how badly India was destroyed. For a country in that situation, it is not unreasonable to expect 10% economic growth year upon year for the next two, three decades. India could have grown very rapidly the way Japan emerged from the ruins. But because of Nehru's decision, we stayed, India stayed, remained in poverty and and, uh, destitution for a very long time, for decades and decades and decades. So things could have been different. Yeah, of course, India could, the Americans would have wanted to extract their pound of flesh, flesh from India. But if you have the right leadership, you can play, you can dance in a certain ma- manner with the with the bigger power, 
and it could benefit your country in a variety of ways. So that's how it is. It's all hypothetical because it's about what if this happened or what if that happened. Well, here we are. <laughs> so that's that's what it is. Okay, Lakshya says, I've noticed that in our, in our country, many people listen to English music just to appear cool, despite not even fully understanding the lyrics. What do you think about this? What kind of music do you listen to? Uh, like I said, when you have a dominant culture in the world, the Anglo-Saxon culture, it is all powerful, it is all pervasive. So people want to copy and ape that and their culture and their their cultural manifestations like music and all that in order to appear cool, even if they even if they don't really understand it, right? Don't they don't understand the lyrics or whatever, they just want to copy that and appear cool. Because if you if you sound American, if you if you pretend to be Western, you look more cool than your Desi counterparts. So that's how it is. So that's unfortunate, but that's just how society and sociology and, and, and psychology works. So I think it's unfortunate. What kind of music do I listen to? I listen to music from all over the world. Uh, I'm a big fan of Mongolian music. Yeah, for instance, Mongolian folk music from Mongolian folk rock. rock. You may have heard perhaps of a Mongolian rock band called The Who, which is a folk rock band. It is rooted in Mongolian traditional music. And I'm also into pure proper Mongolian folk like uh, Badzorik Vanchig, who's, who, who has this famous song called Chinggis Khani Magdal, which has a variety of interpretations and versions. I'm a fan of, of uh, Romani music from Europe, gypsy jazz, uh, artists like Bireli Lagren and uh, Django Reinhardt, Chavolo Schmidt, Dorado Schmidt, uh, Hono Winterstein, gypsy jazz, Romani. The Romani are Indian origin people in Europe. And flamenco. Flamenco is a Romani art form from Spain. Flamenco music is incredibly beautiful. I am, I like music from Western Africa, Mali, the roots of the blues. Artists like uh, Tumani Diabate, Vieux Fakature, uh, Ali Farkature, uh, what's her name? I forget her name. Fatimata Diawara, and so on. Japanese music, Chinese music. I like music from all over the world, but the most interesting uh, form of music for me is Indian classical music. It is the oldest form of music we know of in the world. It's the most advanced form of music in the world. And we are losing that. It's incredibly rich, complex, and beautiful. You know, we have the concept in Indian classical music, the, the central concept is the concept of the rag. A rag is not just a musical scale. It's much more than that. Every rag has a certain scale, maybe an ascending scale that is different from a descending scale. You have sonant notes and consonant notes and drone notes and so much more. It's complex. It's beautiful. With a certain, with a rag, you can create a certain atmosphere and a character and a personality. Every rag is different. Uh, there are uh, certain rags that are for the morning time, some rags for evening time, some rags evolve, evoke certain seasons and so on. It's a very complex thing and, and I wish that people would uh, explore that more. So, uh, unfortunately, Indian classical music is dying out today. That's where we are and that's very unfortunate. Uh, I wish that people would explore that more, but uh, it's not cool nowadays. You know, that's where we are. So I think that people should explore Indian music more. But the question is, where do you explore that? Which are the great artists? All the great artists are from the past. People like Nikhil Banerjee and uh, Pandit Ravi Shankar and uh, Hari Prasad Chaurasya and uh, uh, Shiv Kumar Sharma, 
Bajan Sopori, all of these people are have passed on, unfortunately. So there are no great artists alive today that I can think of. Maybe a couple, but all the great artists are in the past. And there is no innovation happening in Indian classical music. It's all with the same old instruments. I would like to see people innovate and use modern instruments, electronics and all that, to, to play Indian ragas and all that. That would be fascinating. There was this artist called Charanjit Singh from the 1980s who played a who, who came up with an album called 10 Ragas to a Disco Beat. It was Indian ragas on uh, Roland or some synthesizers. Incredible. Sounds very modern, sounds futuristic and sounds rooted in Indian culture. It's amazing. So I would encourage all of you to, to explore Indian classical music. Would you like to, why don't, why don't I demonstrate a little bit, yeah? Let me demonstrate just so that you get an idea of how it is. So this thing is called a guitar. It's my it's my old guitar, 20 years old. So for example, I spoke about ragas and ragas are all about uh, seasons. So listen to this. This is called Raga Vasant. So this is called Raga Vasant. It, it evokes the springtime. There is something called Raga Bhairav, which is uh, it's a very early morning dawn Raga. For instance, it's like this. The scale goes like this. So this is the Raga Vasanta. There is something called Raga Shivaranjani, for instance. It sounds somewhat like this. The scale is like this. One second, where is it? Here we are. This is Raga Shivaranjani. You may have heard certain Hindi songs based on this. For instance. So Bollywood has been <laughs> using Indian ragas. Bollywood and various other forms of uh, various other music industries have been using ragas, but they don't, they don't, uh, quite publicize the fact all Indian music is based on the system of ragas that comes in from, from olden times. It's the oldest music system in the world. So I would encourage you all to try and look it up, try and uh, partake of that, this cultural richness that we have. Okay. Gautam says, is it true that Brahmi and Kharoshti script are derived from Aramaic? as they say in Wikipedia, that is a complete fabrication. As always, as always, the, our historians and linguists and foreign historians and linguists will claim that everything that exists in India came from somewhere else. Now, Aramaic is a Semitic or, or proto-Semitic or some, something like that, that sort of language and script. And they claim it came from there. So let's see what Wikipedia has to say. Let me take a look. Wikipedia Brahmi. Let me share my screen. Where is Wikipedia Brahmi script? Okay, what does it say about the Brahmi script? So if we look here, if you look at the so-called parent systems, it says that Brahmi is derived from Aramaic, which is derived from Phoenician, which is derived from the Proto-Sinaitic script. Utter nonsense. And of course, they are, they are requesting us to pay money. 
and support Wikipedia. Sorry, don't ever pay money to Wikipedia. All right, please don't do that. Right. So this is what Wikipedia says. It says that the, the Brahmi script is derived from the Aramaic alphabet, which is derived from the Phoenician alphabet, which is derived from the Proto-Sinaitic script. Let's see what they what it says about Karoshti. It says Karoshti comes from Aramaic once again, which comes from Phoenician, from Proto-Sinaitic, from Egyptian hieroglyphics, which means they are claiming that all of Indian culture, all the Indian writing systems, everything comes from abroad. There's nothing indigenous about India. Absolute lies. And that's my guitar falling over. That's okay. So that's the lie that's been perpetrated for, for, for like a couple of centuries. And that's not true. The Brahmi script is most likely derived out of the Saraswati Sindhu script. So we have still not been able to decipher the Saraswati Sindhu script. We have lots of inscriptions and uh, some attempts have been done. Some individuals like Iravathan Mahadevan came with some ridiculous fake decipherments. He said it is Proto-Tamil. I have gone through the manuscript, the PDF, which is available online, in which he makes the claims. He does not provide any justification or basis for these claims. For the claims that this is Proto-Tamil. He says this so-and-so uh, symbol stands for so-and-so Tamil word. On what basis do you come up with these claims? There has to be some, some logical basis. There is no logical basis. So people have tried to decipher, have, have claimed to have deciphered the Saraswati Sindhu script. But thus far, it's not been proven. Recently, some more innovations have happened um, which need to be looked into. I think it would not be very difficult to decipher this script as long as you are doing it full time and, and seriously and in, in a scientific manner. But what I can say for sure is that the Brahmi and Karoshni scripts are not derived from any non-Indian scripts or alphabet. alphabets. Brahmi is very... I think there is this article by uh, Dr. Subhash Kak in which he has shown that a certain Brahmi... Um, certain Indus Valley Saraswati Sindhu uh, script uh, inscription actually has uh, can be deciphered and uh, it it represents a sanskrit phrase or something like that so uh it's something that needs to be uh, put to rest properly and it it will happen surely soon so i <laughs> don't agree with this this ridiculous this patently false fabricated claim that brahmi and kharoshti are derived from arabic complete fabrication complete lies Okay, Vamsi says, I have always wondered how Newton and Leibniz both derived equations of differential calculus at the same time. A concept can be devised by a number of people, but from history we get that only one at a time gets the equations right, while they both contributed to the field of mathematics. Does the situation mean that they both learned the equations from another source and made it their own? Listen, it's ridiculous that two guys, one in the island of England, one on the island of England and one in Germany came up with the same exact same discovery of differential calculus, which nobody had ever done before in Europe at, in the same year, at the same time. It's ridiculous. What really happened is that calculus was discovered in, in India. It is known to have been discovered in India at least a century before these two individuals existed. And most likely it dates back to way before that. So, the earliest known evidence of calculus, of infinite series, of differential calculus, and so on, comes from the Kerala School of Mathematics, a century, more than a century before Newton and Leibniz claimed to have made this discovery. And at the time, we had these so-called, what are they called? Jesuit priests, who were uh, 
going around india and uh, trying to acquire various forms of indian knowledge and wisdom so the jesuit priests are the scientists of the vatican they are priests they are employed by the vatican but they go they go around the world trying to acquire scientific knowledge and they would bring it back to the west and then it would be used in, in a variety of forms so all of the for instance you have the kepler's law of planetary motions the three kepler, kepler's three laws of planetary motion these three laws he was able to come up with these three laws based on an enormous amount of astronomical data that astronomical data came from india it was indian astronomical data that he examined and studied for a number of years and on that on the basis of that he was able to come up with the kepler's law, laws of planetary motion the three laws <coughs> excuse me similarly these two guys newton and leibniz i'm not saying they were not good scientists newton was one of the greats and he said that if he has made any any great uh, progress in science it's because he stood on the shoulders of giants he has made this statement he has said this look at up standing on the shoulders of giants newton said that but he did not identify the giants on whose shoulders he stood so it's clear that all of this knowledge came from india it's becoming more and more clear with every passing year with more information coming out that all of this knowledge this indian scientific knowledge whether, whether it is algebra whether it's trigonometry whether it's calculus infinite series whatever all of that came out of india made its way first into the arabic world and sometimes straight into europe like in the case of uh, of calculus so that's what happened all of these all of these are indian inventions western science has progressed in leaps and bounds and today it's the most advanced uh, science and technology in the world it is all based on a foundation of indian science from the uh, middle ages onwards that's when the europeans first came into contact with indian uh, scientific literature and that's what they absorbed incorporated into their um, their own uh, uh, academic system i would say and improved upon that slowly that's what happened okay eddie says i only recently started learning more about indian history and current day politics one question popped into my mind how is the writer rudyard kipling viewed in india today uh him being english and all that that's a that's a good question so uh rudyard kipling is an interesting individual he was born in india i think in in what was then called bombay now mumbai i think he was born in bombay or somewhere in india and uh, he was deeply influenced by india he wrote a lot about india uh, the story of rikki tikki tavi the mangoos uh, the jungle book mowgli shere khan balu bagira and so on and he wrote a number of poems some very racist poems for instance and some not so racist poems so for instance when he writes his very famous poem called the white man's burden is a deeply racist poem it's about the white man carrying the uncivilized barbaric backward primitive natives on their back it 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 implies that all progress in the world depends on the white man let me show you a caricature that was based on rudyard kipling's poem the white man's burden there it is it shows the us and the uk carrying all the primitive backward native races of the world on their shoulders so you have these rocks called barbarism oppression ignorance superstition brutality vice cannibalism ignorance slavery cruelty 
and at the at the top you have civilization which is represented by the british and the americans the americans are carrying the cubans the africans the native native americans and so on the british are carrying the indians and the chinese towards civilization this is rudyard kipling's white man's burden which is deeply offensive and deeply racist to the non white peoples he also came up with this poem called ganga din which is kind of not so <laughs> prejudiced against indians so this is a scene from a movie made made about that poem based on the poem gangadeen so that's how it is so how do people in india view rudyard kipling today most indians still worship him rudyard kipling is an integral part of any uh, english literature course at the bachelor's bachelor's level or master's level and he is portrayed as was one of the greatest english poets which he probably was he was a great poet and great writer but he was deeply racist and that is typically not known to most indians yeah so even today india is a deeply colonized nation the attitudes are still deeply colonized and most indians think that the british did us a great favor by colonizing us and uplifting us from our ignorance and because of that most indians still think rudyard kipling is a great great person and they don't know about his racism and his attitudes towards indians so that is where we are vis-a-vis rudyard kipling who was alan octavian hume and what was the actual purpose behind the making of the indian national congress so this individual alan octavian hume he was a british administrator who spent his entire career i think in india and uh, let's let's google this guy alan octavian hume and let me put that on the screen once again as always wikipedia is not a reliable source of source of information it is highly biased but the but for the sake of convenience i'm just showing you the wikipedia article okay please remember that so this is uh, the article about alan hume so this individual uh spent most of his life most of his working life in india he was a british civil servant political reformer ornithologist and botanist and the founder of the indian national congress he founded the indian national congress in 1885 now let's go back to his career so he was uh, he was in india when the uh, first war of independence happened in 1857 he was the commissioner of customs from 1867 to 1870 and he was the mastermind behind building the 2500 mile long inland customs line uh, inland customs line this is what it looked like if it will load this is it from northern india all the way into to eastern india this was the great indian customs line also known as the great indian hedge all right so this was built in order to prevent the uh, the transportation of salt from india's coastal regions eastwards because the british had imposed a massive punitive salt tax and they wanted all indians to pay the tax before they acquired salt so this hedge was built to prevent the transportation of salt from the coastal regions in the west to the eastern and northern regions of india and because i mean and and this uh, the english writer roy moxham has written a book about this now i i'm not sure how many what was the see there is something called salt deprivation if you defri- if you deprive a human being or any animal also of salt eventually you will go into uh, this salt deprivation mode which will eventually lead to death 
it is estimated that several million Indians died as a consequence of the building of this great Indian hedge because they were no longer able to acquire salt. You need salt in the diet in some quantities. If you are deprived of salt, you're going you're gonna to eventually die. So most likely several million Indians died as a consequence of this policy, of this action done by Alan Octavian Hume. And eventually this individual founded the Indian National Congress in 1885. The purpose of the Indian National Congress was to shepherd the Indian independence movement into a non-violent, harmless direction. So they wanted Indians to feel that there is a proper independence movement happening. But they wanted that movement to be completely non-violent and completely harmless to the British. And once that was established, they could portray any violent resistance to the, to the British as terrorism. So that was the true purpose of the, in, of, the, of the creation of the Indian National Congress. And all the subsequent leaders of the Indian National Congress were all British-educated Indians who were Anglophiles and who, who could speak British, who could speak English very well. You can name who they are. I know, you, I'm sure you know who those great Indian leaders are. So that, that was the purpose of creating the Indian National Congress. Okay, Mango Ilaichi says, what are your views on Dr. S. J. Shankar's statement on the US supporting Pakistan and Ambassador T.S. Tirumurthy's statement in the United Nations about religiophobia? Very important statements. So uh, I have been saying this for quite some time, for a long time, very, for, the, for the longest time, that the US has for the longest time, since the 1980s, supported and financed and funded Pakistani terrorism in India. It's well known. But no Indian leader or diplomat has ever said this until now. I mean, explicitly, clearly. So I think Dr. S. Jayashankar said this in a certain manner, in, in, in diplomatically appropriate language, that the conflict between India and Pakistan is essentially a creation of the US. Something to that effect. I don't remember the exact quote. You can look it up. I'm saying it in my own words. So that's what Dr. S. Jayashankar said. And that is absolutely 100% correct. These assertions need to be made because the British try to, uh, the, the Americans, not the British, same thing. <laughs> the Americans try to lecture India about human rights, about uh, the way India should conduct, uh, conduct its foreign affairs, what India's relations with Pakistan and other countries, and so, and a whole host of other topics. So these statements need to be made to show them the mirror that you are the creators of many of these conflicts. And you are no great paragons of virtue when it comes to uh, human rights and the so-called rules-based world order. They are the biggest violators of human rights and the rule and the so-called rules-based world order. So Dr. Jashankar's statement is very important. Secondly, our ambassador to the UN, uh, Ambassador Thirumurthy, said something about religiophobia. The, the thing in the West is that they talk about the phobia a phobia of a certain religion, a certain religion's phobia. But they don't accept that there are antipathic tendencies towards other religions as well. Typically, when somebody speaks about Hindu phobia, which is a real thing, the West says there is no such thing. And especially, it will be Indian interlocutors in the West who will say there is no such thing as Hindu phobia. So there are lots of Indians who live in the West, people of Indian origin who have, who have taken up citizenship in the West, and they are employed 
as the spokespeople of the West when it comes to India. So that it appears like it is Indians who are saying that you Indians are, are, are telling lies. So typically it will be people in academia, it will be professors, it will be historians and uh, political officials of Indian origins, you know, low level or medium ranking people. And they will come out and say, no, there is no such thing as Hindu phobia. There are plenty of uh, Indian origin academics in the West who are the biggest enemies of India. You can see them all, all over Twitter and in various publications about foreign affairs, etc. So they are the ones who typically say that there is no Hindu phobia. Hindu phobia is a real thing. It's existed for, a, for the longest time in the US, in the West, and even in India today. India is probably the most Hindu phobic nation in the world. Look at the government policies. I'm not saying the central government. I'm saying look at certain state governments, not all state governments, but overall the constitution reduces in, uh, Hindus to second second class citizens, to the status of second class citizens. Hindus are not allowed to administer their own temples. That is clear Hindu phobia. And various government policies in certain states are clearly Hindu phobic. So that's about India's internal Hindu phobia. But when it comes to the West, the West has a very old history of being Hindu phobic. And India's institutional Hindu phobia has its roots in the British occupation of India, which was Hindu phobic. They tried to destroy Hinduism, right? So Ambassador Tirumoti made a statement about religiophobia, that we have to recognize religiophobia, that every religion to some extent, some more, some less, are targeted in this manner. And there are antipathic tendencies to, towards against all religions, especially Hinduism. So you cannot say that only one or two religions have phobias and others don't. That is just not right. So these are both very important statements and this needs to be repeated. Kostub says, recently Russia replaced Saudi Arabia as uh, to become the second largest oil supplier to India. We are reducing oil dependency on the Middle East. Is it a good move? Will the US again use the Middle East to provoke India like they did in the last few weeks for importing more Russian gas and oil? The US will use all resources at its disposal to provoke India and to pressurize India. Even if India accedes to all the demands, they will still keep on doing that. That's how it's going to be. So I think it's a good thing that India is diversify, diversifying its supply of oil and energy. Energy security is very important. And you cannot de depend on a single region or a single nation for your energy security. You need to procure your oil, your gas, coal, whatever it is, from a variety of sources. You need to diversify your portfolio. You need to have a wide, diverse bouquet of energy sources. We should procure, procure oil from the Russians, from the Saudis, from the Kuwaitis, from the Iranians. Why not? From the Omanis, from the Nigerians, from the Venezuelans from the Russians, from from uh, from the Americans, if required. We should diversify our, our sources. And that's always something that's good for you because then you are no longer, you are not going to be dependent on one source and nobody can blackmail you as a, as a consequence of that. So we still procure a significant amount of oil from the, from the Gulf region, from the Saudis and from the countries in this region. We have excellent relations with these countries. Right, So I think it's a very good thing. It's a very good move. And it, nobody should feel uh, should feel aggrieved about India's policy deci decisions. We are an independent nation. We have an independent internal and external policy. And we will do what is best for ourselves. And as long as our mutual interests 
align with other countries, we will work with all of them. That's called multi-alignment. It's called multipolarity. And that's the kind of world we seek, which is based on mutual interest and mutual respect. So that's what we are doing. And it's a very good policy move. Right. Let's take a few more questions. Swapnil says, okay. What, okay. What form were the human species during the Chicxulub event that wiped out the dinosaurs from the earth? So let's understand the chronology. The Chicxulub impact event happened roughly 66 million years before today. 66 million, 6.6 crore years before today. All right. At that time, there were no human beings. The human species, Homo sapiens, is about 300,000 years old. The entirety of humanity is about roughly 2 million years old. Before that, you had pre-human species. About 3 million years before today, the ancestors of us and the ancestors of the chimpanzees were the same. The two branches were united. Just 3 million years before today. So 3 million years before today, there were no humans. They were pre-humans. The Chicxulub impact event happened 66 million years ago. So clearly there would be no human species around at that time. Our ancestors did exist at the time. Mammals. They were about this size. They were rat-like mammals. They survived this horrific cataclysm. They survived it. Most dinosaurs died out, but our ancestors survived it. But they were not humans at the time. They were rat-like creatures, mammals, who lived mostly underground, like rats. Yeah? And when this impact event happened, let me show you where it happened. We should look at the map always. <coughs> Excuse me. Let's go back to the map. So where did this event happen? I'm going to go. So this impact event happened in the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico. This here is Yucatan, Yucatan province of Mexico. You go further to the west, you will come up. There is this town called Chicxulub. Here it is. It's a small village called Chicxulub. It is roughly the epicenter of the impact event. Half of the crater, the crater is now buried underground because it's been a very long time. Half of it is in the ocean and half of it is on land. So that's where this impact happened. When this impact happened, India was not part of Eurasia. India was in the middle of the, of the Indian Ocean. The Indian subcontinent had broken off from Africa about 100 million years before today. It was in the process of moving towards Eurasia. So India at the time was somewhere around this region, Réunion. And it was a time of intense volcanism and that left behind the badlands of central India, the Deccan traps. Okay, so that's what happened in brief. There were no humans at the time. Our ancestors did exist, but they existed in the form of rat-like creatures. All right. Right. Mm. Let's take some other questions. Arman says the author of Mujmaul Tawarikh has quoted an extinct Sanskrit work according to which the original inhabitants of Sindh were the Jats and the Medes. The above was mentioned in an article about Jats in the 
on the on a Punjabi defense on the Pakistani defense website. Is it true that the Jats and the Mids were the original inhabitants of Sindh? It all depends on the time time frame that you're looking at. If you look at the last hundred years, you had a certain ethnicity that lived in, in Sindh, the so-called Sindhi people. If you look at the last 1,000 years, maybe Jats lived there. If you look at the last 2,000 years, maybe the Medes lived there. The Medes were an Eastern, were a Northern Iranian ethnicity. You go back 5,000 years, these inhabitants of this region, which is now called Sindh, were the people of the Saraswati Hindu civilization, the ancestors of most Indians today. So it depends on the lens with which you look. You look at the moon with your naked eyes, with your bare eyes, you will see a certain image of the moon. You take binoculars and look at the moon, you will see more detail about the moon. You take a high-powered telescope, you will see actual rocks and stones and pebbles on the surface of the moon. It depends on what magnification you use and what lens you look at the moon with. Similarly, if you look at Sindh or Rajasthan or Gandhar and you want to know the original inhabitants, you have to look at you have to ask yourself, what time scale are you referring to? If you want to talk about Gandhar, and if you want to look at the past 500 years, you one would have to say that the Pashtuns are the inhabitants of Gandhar. If you look at the past 2000 years, the ancestors of the Pashtuns, the Rajputs, and their ancestors were the original inhabitants of Gandhar. You go back 5000 years, you had the Mahabharat era, possibly of that time, the, the Vedic or, or post-Vedic Indians of, of that time who were the inhabitants of Gandhar and so on and so forth. So nobody sprang out of the soil. Human history is a history of migration. Uh, the best theory that we have as of today is that is the out-of-Africa theory, which says that about 70 or so thousand years before today, the out-of-Africa migration of Homo sapiens happened and then we colonized eventually the whole surface of the planet and India was the foundational zone, the original founder's zone of the out-of-Africa migration. So that's how it is. So uh, I would say that the original inhabitants of Sindh for all intents and purposes were the people of the Saraswati Sindhu phase of India's civilization that goes back about six or so, about 10,000 years before today. Right? I think the oldest evidence uh, of this phase of our civilization is from Bhirana in Haryana, but you have other very ancient sites in Sindh and in present-day Balochistan as well. So one can say with a very high degree of confidence and certainty that the original inhabitants of this region are the people of the Saraswati Sindhu phase of our Indian civilization. And that's the answer. Hopefully it makes sense. Right. Um, Suraj says is there any correlation between power and influence are the same are they the same do influential people have any real power or can power exist without any influence by influence I mean popularity among the masses let's say I have a person I've answered this in the past but let's, let's take it again let's say I have a person who is very popular on social media this individual let's say it's a he let's say it's a he okay this guy has 10 million followers across three, four different social media platforms, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, whatever, total 10 million. So what does it mean to be influential? It means that when this person has something to say, then people will listen and they will consider it seriously. That's called influence. Some may agree, some may disagree, but they will all listen to him because he seems to be, because they see, they find him interesting and they find him somebody they should listen to. So that's called influence. People will listen to you and they will take you seriously and they may agree or disagree. 
That's influence. Now let's take a person too, a second person. He doesn't have 10 million followers on social media, but he has 10 million trained soldiers, heavily armed soldiers at his disposal who will obey him without question. That is power. Whatever he says, they will immediately implement it. No questions asked. Absolute obedience. That is power. Influence does not mean that there is absolute obedience. So influence is not power. Power means you have influence, but influence does not mean you have power. That is the difference. Um, whoa. Is it okay to kill ants for fun? Please don't. Please don't do that. It's not okay. What's the fun? I don't get it. Please don't do it. Uh, what was your reaction when you first got to know the true history of India? I know it wasn't because of a few books. It took a lot of research, which eventually led you to knowing the true history. But still, how was the reaction during the process? Would love you to repeat the reaction. Oh my God! That was the reaction. <laughs> you know, it, it doesn't happen overnight. Initially, like everybody else, I believe whatever the textbooks told us. Then out of curiosity, I lo started looking at various other things. I think uh, as a kid, as a seven-year-old, ten-year-old kid, I used to read history books, but I was never interested in Indian history because it was so depressing. So I knew about world history from a very young age. It's only in, in my 20s that I started becoming interested about Indian history, in Indian history. And I started looking up research papers about archaeology, about uh, genetics, etc., and that's when I started uncovering certain truths which are which I had not known until then. It was a slow, gradual process. But very quickly, I started realizing that everything we have been told is a lie. Much of it is a lie. And even the truth is distorted. So there was no Eureka moment. It was a slow, gradual process. Until 2017, I used to even believe in the Aryan invasion theory. 2016 or 2017. Then one day, for whatever reason, I, I told myself, let me take a look at the actual um, actual evidence. You know, the, the primary sources. Not what textbooks tell you, not what uh, writers tell you, but the primary evidence, the actual research. So I went into archaeology, I went into history, uh, sorry, genetics. I went deep into linguistics. And then what stared me in the face was complete shock. <laughs> And that's when I wrote that first article about the Aryan invasion myth. I think it was in 2017, in which I put all of the, the, the data across multiple disciplines together. So, yeah, it's it's a slow, gradual process. And there was no sudden moment of realization when, then, when I realized everything is wrong. It was a slow process. Okay, let's take one more. Arpan says, I'm astonished seeing you explaining physics with deep knowledge from first principles itself. You explain history reflecting your depth of research. I'm I'm sure you have other areas of interest too. How do you cope with such switch of paradigms? Being in this context, what do you think about the pro about, about proverbs like a person who chases two rabbits, rabbits ends up catching neither or jack of all trades and master of none? Well, I don't know about proverbs. I'm sure that they are. They have some some wisdom to them. See, the thing about history is that once you study history. Let's say as a hobby, once you acquire the knowledge, it stays with you. At least for me, it's like that. I have been studying history from, from a very young age out of curiosity as a hobby, not as the primary pursuit. 
So in my free time, time I would read history books and all that. I, I found it very interesting. And for whatever reason, I find that I'm able to absorb whatever I find interesting and I retain the knowledge. So it's a long process. And that's always been a hobby until recently. My primary um, area of competition, uh, competence is science. It's physics, physics, theoretical physics. In the case of physics, it's like athletics. You take a break, then you are no longer good at it. It's something you have to keep on. Uh, it's a process you have to keep uh, keep continue, continue doing. So scientific research, if you take a break from it for one year or two years, when you return to it, you find that you are no longer that competent. It will take you uh, a few months to again reach that level of competence. So in the case of science, you have to continuously practice it. It's like being an athlete. You you take a break from it for, for a few months, you lose your mojo, so to say. In the case of history, it's not like that. So my I am very clear about the fact that my primary area of expertise, my primary area of competence is theoretical physics. It's science. That's what I truly am. That's what I enjoy the most talking about. But over the decades, I've acquired a lot of, a great amount of understanding at, at my level about history. And because I understand history, I also understand geopolitics. So I speak about that. Right? So I don't find that I need to keep practicing the reading of history every single day in order to be good at history. It's something that accumulates over time. But in the case of science, you have to stay on top of your game. So it's two different things. Totally different. The, the pursuit of uh, expertise or competence in history is a very different game from being a top-class scientist or a world-class scientist. Very different mindset, very different approach. So it's not the you, that you're chasing two rabbits. It's got. It's like you have one rabbit in, in one hand and you're going after another rabbit. You already caught one rabbit and you're going after another rabbit. And I have lots of other interests. I am, I am very deeply, I used to be very uh, deeply interested in music, but I, I no longer do that. I haven't played the guitar in years now, but uh, it's something that I was really fascinated with. And music is something that's fascinating because it's purely mathematical and it it also has implications about human consciousness and all that why do we enjoy certain sounds and dislike certain other kinds of sounds why are, why are certain frequencies pleasing to us and not others and so on so uh that's something i was always also fascinated with about but i no longer have the time to pursue my interest in music as a practice uh, as, as a performing musician as, a, as, a, as somebody who plays music so I nowadays only listen to music. So you can't chase all the rabbits in the world. You have to make a choice of, of which rabbits you want to chase. So I have one rabbit in my hand, which is history and geopolitics. I don't need to keep practicing it in order to retain that knowledge. It's there. It's not going to go anywhere. But physics, science, it's something you need to stay on top of the game. So I have one rabbit in the hand and I'm chasing another. I'm not chasing two different rabbits going in two different directions. If I were to also try and pursue music, in a serious manner, then I would have one rabbit in my hand and I would be chasing two different rabbits. That's not very advisable. So that's how I see it. Yeah. Okay, let's take a couple of questions from the live chat. If you have questions, uh, fire away. All right, is there any question? Um, what's your view on the Vedic age? How many people used to live in that era? Is there any place that still exists now? The Vedic age was, I don't know how many thousands of years ago. The Rig Vedic age would be around the time when the Saraswati was still a big thing. The great Saraswati river was still a river in its prime, which is about 6,000 BC. So I would say the Vedic age is somewhere around that time period. 
and it's obviously the the population of our ancestors was must have been much lower than what it is now um this the vedic age was primarily centered around the saraswati sindhu valleys which is western and northern india today uh present day haryana punjab sindh the western region and i'm sure the population was much less than what it is today because the vedic uh, people were were grouped into various clans a clan is like an extended family so that's how it was do this do those places exist today of course they exist today the same places exist today which they existed earlier so that's what i think about it that's what i feel about it so basically you are a physics batsman who bowls history a bit no i am an all rounder i am primarily a physics batsman but i'm also a very good history bowler i don't his bowl history a bit i do not see myself as a an amateur historian or somebody who doubles in history i think i have a reasonable amount of competence i am saying this without any arrogance or something I, it's just a self assessment i know how much time i've put into studying history as well which is more than most people would would put in in any one field so so i it's not quite uh, quite accurate but yeah um okay this is an interesting question india has decided to to host a g20 meeting in jammu and kashmir what are your thoughts i think it's a very good move why not why not it also sends a very good and strong message to the world okay what else do we have what else do we have um let us see from where did you learn how to play ragas can you tell ah uh, i am a self taught guitar player i taught myself how to play the guitar no one taught me that and then you can look up the raga notation online if you want to know the the notes of a raga let's say you want to learn the notes of raga meghmalhar for instance you can google it and they will tell you what are the main what is the main scale the ascending scale the descending scale which notes are to be played which is the dominant note which is the sub dominant note what are the drone notes and then you can look up various google i mean various youtube videos about how it sounds and you can try and imitate that i am not a professional musician i am an amateur complete amateur in that but it's something i find very fascinating and i i tried whenever i have some time i dabble in that trying to play ragas on the guitar so i am entirely self taught in that all right i think we're done here it's oh yeah it's it's gone beyond 2 hours so thank you everybody for the for your questions always interesting questions keep it going we'll do it again next week i will see you in the next episode and those of you who have the jee i came to know that the joint entrance exam of the iit is on so those of you who are appearing for the jee i wish you all the best go win go do well and yeah that's it i will see you in the next episode take care bye bye all the best